Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Anne. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Rex Factory, bringing all the kings and queens uh, of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Um, yes, yeah, so this week we're doing Anne, and uh, she is the last of the Stuarts. So hey. ending a dynasty. Yeah. Today, on quite range. a long dynasty. Uh, before we get on to Anne, however, we've had some messages. Good, good. From various sources. Uh, firstly, an email which came to rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. This is from Kendra Williams in uh, Portland, Oregon. Oh, yeah? In the US. I just caught up on the podcast and I'm loving it. Besides the history lessons, I'm getting some education on British slang. The first few episodes I had a hard time understanding you guys, but now I don't notice it. I think it's great when you put on the serious voice to dramatise quotes by the monarchs. So funny. Keep up the great work. I think when you are done, this good info could make for an awesome book. What slang? Do we use slang? I think apparently it was one like where um, we said that Edgar the Peaceable had really bossed it. Oh, well, fair, enough, fair enough. So she was able to sort of pick it up. But, well, apologies uh, if there's... But she didn't write them all down at the time <laughs> for uh, posterity. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to know. Yeah. On to uh, Facebook, where you can uh, like us, if you would, please. Uh, Guy Carter left a message saying, thanks for the podcast, really helping with my A-level history revision. Oh, yeah, he's doing some of the... Um, yeah, he doesn't like he doesn't like Mary, though. That was mm. the trouble, yeah. Um, I presume that next year we will be properly on the syllabus. I assume so, As yeah. a learning aid. And uh, Tom Harris uh, says, Thanks for the podcast from a fellow podcaster and history buff. I've really enjoyed all of the shows, but especially those about the Saxon kings. More recently, I was pleased to hear mention of one of my more notorious relations, Sir Richard Empson. It said that every family tree has a noose or two hanging from it, and mine is no exception. Keep up the great work. Who was he? Which one was he? He was. If you remember back to Henry VII, and in his later years, he had a couple of financial guys who were really unpopular. And first thing pretty much Henry VIII did was say, yep, you can execute them. Oh, the really? Scapegoats. And then one of them was a Dudley, who, of course, that family, yeah. every generation, but also the other one was this chap. We also had a message um, within Podbean, which said, just found your podcast, it's brilliant. Perhaps you could figure out a way to work, out, uh, work Alexander Hamilton into your podcast. I think he was the son of a Scottish laird. Maybe that counts for something. Um, don't know, I'm, I'm familiar with him. I've looked up, I looked him up on uh, Wikipedia, obviously, and there were a few... Alexander Hamilton's, all of whom Scottish, and I wasn't quite sure which one it is, so if you could let us know which one specifically, although I suppose we have kind of worked it in already. Yeah, might fall against uh, Edward I, maybe. Maybe. This yeah. person uh, called themselves I Love Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> right, yeah. Brilliant. Quite a fan, apparently. Anyway, so keep the messages coming in, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, send us an email. Yeah, keep up the Facebook stuff, even though it now looks weird. Anyway, let's do it. Anne. She's born in 1665, the daughter of James II and Anne Hyde, so named after her mother. Yes, yeah. And she becomes queen in 1702, so she's about 37 years old. Can't believe we're still having people born in 1665. It seems mm. anyway. pre-Great Fire of London. Yeah. And like William and Mary last time, she is second cousin eight times removed of Elizabeth II. Yeah, because they're all of that same, same generation. Of them, yeah. Right? So her early years, uh, she suffered from defluxion, which is sort of watering eyes. So she was sent to an oculist in France, apparently, at the age of four, and she was given diamond-set bracelets by Louis XIV. For for this, as a cure? No, just as a present, because they were were related. Hmm. So, of course, he will loom large 
later in the reign. So, yeah. um, and as a result, she was unable to read or write for long periods of time. Because of the diamond bracelet? Because of her eyes. Oh, what a bloody hell. I it was really heavy. Oh! <laughs> um, so as a result, as I said, struggled reading and writing for long periods, and she also has a natural desire for a sort of small, private clique of friends. So she doesn't like big, open courts with lots and lots of people and stuff going on, because she can't see and recognise Oh, really? She likes things right. quite okay. quiet. So it means that she's a bit more mm. shy and reserved as a person. Little interest in the visual arts, obviously, because you can't mm. see them. Like Mary, um, her education, very limited for women in this period, so it focuses on domestic skills like sewing, embroidery, etc. Though she did speak French very well, apparently, and could converse privately with ambassadors. Most importantly, she was Protestant, very Protestant, so as you will recall, yeah. James II, her father, Catholic, big problem, his children are Protestant. Mm. Yes. Um, in terms of her appearance, she's got sort of reddish-brown curled hair, inclined to plumpness from a young age. This is all the females have. Yeah, story. Anne Hyde, her mother, grew very fat, and Mary also struggled with this. Uh, apparently she had very well-shaped hands, Anne. Which it's quite so weird what historians pick up on, isn't it? I'm, I'm seeming to recall Ma- Elizabeth. Elizabeth did, yes, definitely. Yeah, well. She had long gloves. Mm. Yes. Very important person in her life, we must mention at this point, is Sarah Churchill, May Jennings. Um, she was Anne's closest friend, very beautiful, had a sharp wit, very lively character, so very much contrasting with Anne, who is quite shy and dull as a person. <laughs> right. um, and Sarah marries John Churchill, who's the future Earl and then Duke of Marlborough. Right, yeah, right. However, a more important person comes along, namely her husband. Mm. Not that he was at the time. This is Prince George of Denmark. She marries in 1683. He was in his 30s, at that time fairly good-looking, had a bit of a reputation as a decent soldier, and was 18 years old. Uh, but nobody thought very highly of poor George of Denmark. He was dismissed as dull-witted and as something of a non-entity. Mm. Never fully mastered English and just had a very great love for food and liquor, though his appearance rather uh, right. deteriorated right. yeah. over time. And he never had a strong role at all, always in the background. Uh, but he suffered from very bad asthma, so there was a quip by one person that but for his heavy breathing he would be mistaken for dead and buried by mistake. This is a very good quote from George. We talk here of going to tea, of going to Winchester, and everything else except sitting still all summer, which was the height of my ambition. God send me a quiet life or s- somewhere, for I shall not be long able to bear this perpetual motion. Well, so all he wanted to do was have a little sit down. It's a hard, hard life. Crikey. And, took, uh, and, and he was complaining because he had to go to tea. Yes, or Winchester. Oh, or Winchester, yeah. Charles II, as ever, got very much to the nub of the matter. Excellent. Saying, Excellent. I've tried him drunk and I've tried him sober, but there's nothing in him. <laughs> I miss him. <laughs> Apparently George was worried about uh, becoming fat, and so Charles gave him the advice of, walk with me, hunt with my brother, do justice to my niece, and you will not be fat. <laughs> He's so good. He's so cool. <laughs> However, in his defence, um, he was a good-natured man, not ambitious, and he's entirely faithful to Anne, which under the courts of Charles and James is completely mm. at odds with what everyone else is doing. And he supports her, so he's happy to you know, be the sort of Prince Philip-style yeah, yeah. husband rather than a William, William III. Yeah. Big moment, of course, for Anne, as we've covered twice now, but we've got to cover it again, is the Glorious Revolution, 1688, Quick recap, James II, unpopular Catholic king of 1685 to 1688, increasing tensions when he tried to install Catholics into government, into the army, tried to repeal the Test Act, yep. which sort of put laws against Catholics. The big thing which you have a bit more of a focus on was, of course, the 
pregnancy of James's wife, Mary of Medina. Or assumed pregnancy. Assumed pregnancy, which led to the birth of a son, mm. who should have been James III. Anne is a key figure in spreading the rumour that it's not a real pregnancy or is, a real son. So it definitely was a real pregnancy, though? All the historians seem to agree that there's no doubt okay, right. that he was. Uh, but Anne, writing to Mary, who was in Holland at the time, of course... You know, telling her first that Mary was just pretending to be pregnant, it was a false belly, then that the son was a fake or a changing that had been mm. brought in. And eventually, when William does invade England in late 1688, Anne abandons her father. And uh, apparently her husband, Prince George, had been, in his dull-witted way, incre- just amazed every time there was news of a new person defecting. So every time, apparently, he would respond, Est il possible? <laughs> is it possible? And when Prince George II um, went off and James II was told about this, James quipped, so, et il possible is gone too. <laughs> the only humorous yeah. remark James has ever yeah. recorded as having made. So, William <laughs> usurps uh, James II. William and Mary become joint rulers, William mm-hmm. III and Mary II. What happens here, of course, is that Anne has been supplanted in the succession by William, so it was agreed that if Mary dies, William will continue to become to be king. Even though Anne has a stronger claim. Even though Anne has a stronger yeah. claim. So she's a bit lower down. So she doesn't like William. She's never really liked William, but she certainly holds this against him. Poor William, everyone's against him. Nicknames him uh, Caliban, Monster, and the Dutch Abortion. Ooh. Ooh, so that's right. That's quite nasty, yes. I'm not sure if maybe the word abortion has a more uh, strong... <laughs> sense now than maybe it did at the time. She also didn't like the fact he was very disdainful, as was everyone, towards her husband George. Mm. Uh, in particular, he refused him a naval commission. Um, but, but my favourite anecdote of why she held things against William was relating to a dish of fresh peas. Well, yeah, that would wind it Delicacy up. at the time. Uh, apparently, William ate the whole dish of peas <laughs> on the table yeah. without offering any, despite the fact that she had so much mind to the peas that she was afraid to look at them and yet could hardly keep her eyes off them. That is disgraceful. And William just ate the whole He gobbled lot. them down with his little beak. He did indeed, his penguiny beak. They also um, quarrelled, Anne, with uh, William and Mary, um, over really petty things like her lodgings and about money. So, you know, she wanted apartments at Whitehall and Richmond, and made William by getting through her £30,000 a year allowance well before the end of the year. Uh, That's a lot of money, though. She loved her gambling. James II always paid off the gambling debts, but William wasn't quite so sure why he should. (laughs) Yeah, and she upset them even further because her supporters in Parliament called for her to have a seventy thousand pound allowance, and she went behind their backs to sort of get more support, and she ended up being voted fifty thousand pounds a year. That's still a load of money. Oh, it is. That's a lot of money. But the real tension and the fallout with her sister Mary comes over Marlborough. 1692, he was deprived of his offices and imprisoned um, because he was found to have correspondence with James, who at this point is in exile. Who's this had correspondence? Marlborough. Uh, Marlborough, John Churchill. So this, of course, disgraces the Churchill family, but despite this, Anne refuses to dismiss Sarah Sarah Churchill from her service and brings her to court. So Anne is thrown out of Whitehall, stripped of her guard of honour, and courtiers are banned from visiting her. So she's... What, what's her title here? She's, um, just... she's still a uh, princess. She's still the uh, next in line to the throne after William and Mary. But she's, she's just, just out of favour. Disgraced, right? Yeah. Okay. Increasingly strained relationship with her sister Mary. Um, sadly, they never spoke again after um, Mary still continued to criticise Anne for keeping Sarah in her service, even when she visited Anne after she'd had a miscarriage. Mm. And she still chose to start 
rebuking her. Wow. So after that, they never spoke again. And then, of course, Mary got smallpox in 1694. After that, there was a sort of a public reconciliation that she had with William. Gave her some peace? Gave her some peace. Um, <laughs> publicly reconciled, restored her to her former status, whether or not that involved peace. Yeah. I guess we'll never know. Give peace a chance. Oh, God, done it again. An important thing at this point, without wanting to get ahead to dynasty, we do need to cover Anne and her children. Um, Duke of Gloucester, also called George, was her only son. Bit of a difficult upbringing, not a very healthy child, couldn't speak or walk until he was three. Wow. Had a very large head, struggled to climb stairs without people helping him. Was it a balance issue? That's why he can walk? Balance, yeah, balance problems. Uh, but he was well liked by uh, William and Mary. Apparently, one time we came to them at Kensington and he drilled a, a troop of boys with wooden swords in front of them. Um, but he developed speech and becomes quite a precocious slash odd child. So he got much more adept at speaking. There's one lovely time when he was interrupted while playing with a model ship when some dignitary came and wanted to say hello. Uh, to which apparently he sighed in exasperation. Who would be a prince? <laughs> When he's sort of wow. like five years old. That's quite an irritating child. <laughs> yeah. uh, apparently quite ugly as well. Even Anne acknowledged that though she loved him dearly, she could not pretend that he was attractive. <laughs> oh, uh, but very sadly, 1700, um, he was celebrating his 11th birthday at Windsor, but went to bed with sore throat uh, and chills, developed a fever, fell into delirium, was bled by his doctors, Ooh. which never worked very well on children, and died, sadly. Well, do, is there a modern take on what it might have been that he had? Well, they know that he, they found that he had water on the brain, um, which is called hydrocephalus. So that's yeah. why he had the balance issue. But they don't think that's why he died. But he seems quite sickly. Yes, yeah, so he's never very healthy. But mm. tragically for Anne, that was the case with all of her children because she had seventeen pregnancies in seventeen years, twelve miscarriages or stillbirths. Four died before the age of two, so it was only Gloucester was this one child. And then, of course, when he dies, you know, she isn't, isn't able to have any more children after 1700. Yeah. So that's why she's the last, and there are no more Protestant Stuarts left, because she has all these pregnancies. They None of them oh, successful. Numerous theories for why none of them survived. Some suggested syphilis inherited from James II because of his... Because he was Catholic. <laughs> That's what they yeah. said at the time. Yes. Really. Um, some I'm not saying, saying that now. <laughs> well, you said, said it now. Did. Damn. Some saying a deformed pelvis, but no one really knows why. Um, as a side effect, she grew increasingly fat, of course, afterwards, because mm. of all these pregnancies and her inclination towards it anyway. Mm. Politically, this is a big thing because, as we said, no more Stuart children. Mm. And Act of Settlement 1701 comes into place because in 1689 the Bill of Rights... Which put Anne in place. And it was meant to be Anne and then, of course, the Duke of Gloucester and then yeah. he would have children. Yeah. But because he's died, there's now no one actually legally... Duke of Gloucester, the little child. Yes. And then 1701 is the Act of Settlement. So this is to sort out the problem that he's right. dead and there's no one left. Okay. So they reject about 50 Catholics who would be next in line before they get to the next Protestant... Wow. Who is uh, Sophia, Electress of Hanover. 1702, Anne accedes to the throne following the death of William III. Delivers an excellent speech at a coronation because uh, Charles II had noticed when she was a young girl that she had a very mellifluous speaking voice, a beautiful voice. Oh, right, okay. Uh, So he got one of his actress friends to give her elocution lessons. Right. So she delivers a very Mm. good speech. However, she's got lots of challenges. Firstly, her health. Mm. Suffering lots of illness, gout and uh, increasing obesity, particularly. Obviously, those 17 pregnancies and also a fondness for food and liquor. From 1695, she's unable to climb climb stairs or stand well unaided. Not because she's got water on the brain, just because she's so fat. 
From 1699, she couldn't really walk without an aid for any great distance, so her coronation, she had to be carried in a chair. Really? As Sarah Churchill said, she grew increasing, exceedingly gross and corpulent. There was something of majesty in her look, but mixed with the gloominess of soul. This, this is a friend talking. Well, although we'll see that the, right. that friendship turns. Um, but she still she got about. She was said to have driven around her estates in a one-horse chase, uh, driving furiously like a mighty Nimrod. <laughs> Brilliant. But in particular, she's got political challenges. Mm-hmm. Firstly, there's the issue of the succession. She's got, of course, the Hannibers, but there is still the threat of the Jacobites. Yeah. And as some people would see it, James III. And loyalties have been uncertain under William III, especially in Scotland. Politics, we've seen in the previous episodes, but it's even more in this case, that the party division is now becoming entrenched at elections and uh, in central government. So we've got the Tories, who are country gentry, they stand for Anglicanism and divine rule of monarchy. Whigs, the landowners and businessmen, who stand for the authority of Parliament and are quite keen on intervening in Europe. Mm. So they're starting to become more of a division, which is going to make things more difficult for the monarch. And also we have the War of the Spanish Succession. Oh, yeah. There was a dispute as to who would inherit the Spanish Empire because the King of Spain hadn't had any sons surviving and his will had meant to be splitting it, but then he changed his mind and gave it all to France. So we've got Philip, Duke d'Anjou of France, who is the son or grandson, actually, of Louis XIV, right. and Leopold I, the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, who were disputing it. War is declared in 1702. So, winter Anne's reign. Her first ministry, mainly made up of Tories, uh, but Anne herself hated parties, so she tried to govern with men who were a bit more sort of neutral, yeah. or at least less mm. tied down to a party. So, Marlborough and a man called Lord Godolphin were sort of her two lynchmen, sort of the kind of non-party men that she got to govern things. Okay. Godolphin was a very capable minister, so while Marlborough was dealing with war, Godolphin was kind of sorting stuff at home. Diplomat. Charles II described him as a man who was never in the way and never out of the way. Mm. It's a very good description of any politician, probably. (laughs) Tories, however, cause a bit of a controversy over something called occasional conformity. So this was where they wanted large fines for people who took the Anglican sacrament, but then went to a dissenting service, i.e. a non-Anglican service. So they were trying to avoid being labelled as a dissenter and so having restrictions on... Education and offices. Are to centre as in a Catholic? Uh, well, non-Protestant or Protestant as well, but right. just not Church of England. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Quakers and okay, all yeah. that kind of thing. So they wanted to make sure that either you're Anglican or you're not. Mm. So initially Anne supports it, but it was rejected by the Lords and fearing a real sort of tension in the country and in Parliament and withdrew her support and the bill was defeated. And things were getting worse for the Tories because they opposed the war against Louis Fourteenth. Because as uh, land taxes were so heavy, they were the ones that had to pay them. So they felt they were paying for the war, not getting anything in return. Mm. Whereas Whigs, the businessmen who were pro-war, tended to profit more financially. So they made the guns. They made the guns and everything else. Marlborough is opposed by the Tories because he is the man who is of course, leading the war. Mm. And he goes very well for him. 1702-03, he frees the Dutch Republic from France. And then 1704, the Battle of Blenheim. Huge victory for England and its allies under Marlborough. First major French defeat for many, many years. This is a huge boost to national esteem, huge boost to the standing of the Whigs, and it's another knock to the Tory party. Yeah, what year is this? That's 1704. So this is the start of some British dominance then, isn't Very it? much. So in 1705, Anne starts to dismiss Tories from her government, and then in an election in 1705, 
big defeats for the Tory people and success for the Whigs. So even though we're seeing elections, Anne still has the power to just dismiss ministers that she feels... Yes. Right. Okay. And, of course, people in the Lords are still largely the ones that are actually the people governing. Right. But nevertheless, elections are starting to have an impact. So the Whigs are the ones now who have done very well, and the national mood is pro-war, pro-Whigs. So this means that uh, Godolphin and Marlborough are able to continue to really dominate what's going on. And they also have something of a triumvirate with another man called Robert Harley. Next thing is Scotland. Oh, no, what are they up to now? The Jacobites uh, in Scotland, I the people that support yeah. James III, the old pretender, they oppose the Hanoverian succession. They don't want the Hanovers to come in. They think after Anne dies, it should be their guy. But they're strangely all right with Anne. Well, they're kind of okay with Anne because she's still a steward, so they're, mm. you know. Right, okay. But they think after Anne, this okay. is a perfect opportunity. No more Stuart children except this guy that got yeah. knocked over. And he's Catholic. But he's Catholic. But mm. many people in Scotland are supporting him. And they push things a little bit in 1703 in Scotland with a thing called the Act of Security, which provides that the next monarch would be Protestant, but not necessarily the same as the next King of England or Queen. So in Scotland, they say, the next monarch must be Protestant, but we might decide to have someone different to who they have in England. Can they do that? Well, because we still don't have a political union between England and Scotland. But the head of the state is the thing joining it, so they can just decide who to suppose they can. Well, exactly. Yeah, so they're yeah. saying, we don't recognise the person that England is choosing to be mm. the next in line. We think it might be someone else. Right. So it's clearly a threat yeah. to, the just, Protestant, just to the succession. Well, it's not treated as such by England. So in 1705, England introduced an Aliens Act, so all non-resident Scots are treated as aliens and export trades are banned. So they're really sort of financial hit on Scotland. So, 1706, two acts of commissioners come together and they decide we've got to sort this out. We need to have proper political union between England and Scotland. Yeah. Hammer out the demands. And it's actually very easy. England is very keen on having a political union. Scots are very keen on having free trade and particularly being included in England's sort of plantation. Yes. Yeah, so I've heard that it was a lot of empire, though. Scots the Caledonian project or something. Well, yeah. Yeah, the Darien scheme, of course, fails under William III, so they'd lost all their money, so they really want in on English empire. So, 1st of May, 1707, Great Britain is established, and we have, for the first time, over 100 years after James I became King of Scotland and King of England, political union of England and Scotland. That's huge. 1707, the Act of Union, Great Britain is formed. I mean, that's just dropped in there, but that's... That's massive. Very, very big. And the succession issue is now resolved because Scotland are now, of course, agree the next okay. king of England will be the same as the next king of Scotland because they are now one kingdom. But that doesn't put to bed the Jacobite issue. doesn't put them to bed, but it means that as a sort of official... Uh, yeah, official line. Official right, Scotland. Is, yeah. Yeah. And we have further military success under Duke of Marlborough. Victory at uh, Ramillies in uh, 1706 drives France and most of the Spanish Netherlands and captures Brussels, Bruges and Antwerp. Another victory at Oudenard in 1708. So it's all going very, mm. very well. Go, go, go. In the military and, of course, for the Whigs. But we start to see some internal political conflict. OK. Marlborough and Godolphin believe the war can only be won with having more Whigs in government because Whigs are pro-war, Tories anti-war. But Harley is something of a moderate Tory. 
So he thinks that they should have a more sort of neutral central coalition. Does uh, But Anne is becoming increasingly alienated from Sarah Churchill. Right. Her great friend has become... Her wits has become sort of sharper. Her arrogance has become even worse. Well, she's never sounded much fun, to be honest. Well, she's a lot of fun, but she thinks very highly mm. of herself. Yeah. But she starts to become quite bullying, quite hectoring towards Anne. She's virulently pro-weak. Mm. So she's always harping on about that. So Anne's, you know... Getting a bit fed up with her. Yeah. What's more, Anne has become friends with Sarah's inconspicuous cousin, Abigail Masham. And the problem comes now where we've got a conflict within her sort of group of ladies and within a group of politicians. So what happens is, Harley starts to exert influence over Anne by becoming friends with Abigail Masham. Right. So yeah, Harley's yeah. teamed up with Clever. one of them. And of course, Sarah married to John Churchill, the Wick. Uh, yeah. So we have this conflict there. So he's using this sort of backstairs intrigue to try and influence Anne. Godolphin and Marlborough find out about this, so in 1708 they force the issue and Harley is um, removed from government. Well, gone are the days when he would have been executed, I suppose. Well, yes, indeed. Things take a turn for the worse for Anne, of course, sadly, in 1708, when her husband, Prince George, dies. Suffered uh, increasingly poor health, died from complications relating to his asthma... And absolutely devastated by this, because he'd always stood by her and been loyal and faithful. Yeah. It's probably the best news he ever had, though. Well, it's time <laughs> oh, at last to rest yeah. in peace. So we see the Whigs are really starting to push themselves onto Anne, and she's not liking it very much. Conflict going mm. on, and sure enough, tables turn against the Whigs. Firstly, Sarah Churchill. Again, she'd lost her only son, and it was said that her character had worsened after this. She's mm. pretty much bullying Poor Anne by this stage. So Anne had turned to the more sedate friendship that she had from Abigail Masham, but Sarah was furious about this, about having a rival, to the extent that she accused Anne of having a lesbian relationship. Pretty low. With Abigail Masham, very low indeed. Uh, things got much worse with the death of Prince George, because Sarah ignored an order from Anne to send for Abigail. So after George died, Anne wanted Abigail to mm. be with her, but Sarah was like, oh no, I don't think so. Ooh. Didn't bring Abigail on. Insisted on removing a portrait of George that Anne wanted to remain. Um, Increasingly insensitive about this. And then she later got very cross when Anne went out in public one stage and Sarah had left out jewels for her to wear. Anne had decided not to wear them. Um, So apparently in public, Sarah was shouting at her and hectoring her. And then at one point when Anne turned around to remonstrate with her, Sarah told her to pretty much shut up. Gosh, she sounds like shit. Boring, hard work, old trout was. So in uh, seventeen eleven, she is finally dismissed and service, despite the pleas of her husband. She's dismissed. Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah. But this is had been previously a key person, right at the heart of uh, yeah, Anne's court, uh, yeah. pro Whig. Following this, of course, we have the problem that country is actually getting a bit fed up with the war. After seventeen oh eight, things not exactly become a stalemate, but it doesn't look like England are actually going to be able to launch the killer blow. Public expenditure had risen from 3 million to 13 million. Uh, the national debt from 10 million to 50 million. Grace prices, uh, grain prices are rising. And there was something of Pyrrhic victory at Malplaquet, where the French were defeated, but English and allies actually lost more men. Mm. So, as Anne herself said, when will this bloodshed ever cease? Mm. People are getting fed up with it. And, of course, the Whigs have a real disaster when a man comes along called Sacheverell. Easy for you to say. Well, it wasn't, but I got it right first time. <laughs> 1709 to 10, he's a Tory preacher, and he attacks uh, dissenters, and in particular, the Glorious Revolution. 
he attacks that. He launches a public attack on it and some of the principles involved. What, on what grounds? Uh, well, he says it's an attack on the sort of divine might of monarchy and all these sorts of things oh, it's against the line, yeah. of God, all these sorts of things. But Godolphin and other Whigs overstep the mark by having him impeached. Yeah, it's all spiralling a bit, isn't it? Been it is, control. and there were riots, attacks on dissenting properties because he's seen as an Anglican martyr, mm. in effect. So people are very angry about the fact that he's been treated like this. Anne follows the case very closely, only wants a light sentence. So only 69 to 52 majority that find him guilty, and his sentence is just that he's suspended from sermons for a few years. Right. So clearly yeah. that's not much of a Whig victory. Mm. Sure enough, Harley who had been kicked out, is now able to win back Anne's support. Of course, Abigail Masham is now right at the centre now that Sarah Churchill's been kicked out. So it's a um, back to Tories. Back to the Tories. So Tories pushing for peace, which is now what the people want. Mm. 1710 election, huge Tory victory. And in 1711, Anne dismisses Godolphin and Marlborough. Mm. Oh, Marlborough's gone now. He's gone as well. Right. So in 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht, there is peace made between England and France. So the England's allies are just stunned at the fact that Marlborough, this great general who's been winning all these battles, gets dismissed. Yeah. French are delighted. Okay, so now that's peace, but where does that leave Europe? What's the... What happens is, France, uh, England makes peace with France without consulting its allies, so they allow Philip, Duke Jean-Jean, uh, to have the Spanish Empire, but he's got no future right to France. So they're sort of making sure that France can't have this huge combined kingdom. And so they agree to that. it off, France agree. Um, and huge commercial concessions made to England in terms of ports and territories and things like this. So England comes out of it very, very well. It's opposed by the Lords because a lot of them are still Whigs. So Anne creates 12 new Tory peers to uh, to get it signed. That's the equivalent of political quantitative easing. You it just, is, yeah. Just pour in the right, more exactly. of the right ones. Uh, but so, peace is made. Right. However, Anne's health has been radically deteriorating in these final years. Doctors warned her of the dangers of disquiet and uneasiness. That, yeah, that can be dangerous. And she, all the people that were her support in her early years got caught up in the politics of it. And, and they've, they've all, all gone. gone. So that's quite... So uh, she suffers violent strokes, leaving her unable to speak, and on the 1st of August, 1714, she dies at the age of 49. So how long was her reign? 14 years? Well, we'll find out. Oh, of course we will. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like I've never done this before. (laughs) So that is uh, the end of Anne, and it is the end of the Stuart dynasty. Yeah. But time for us to review her. How will she get on? Okay, let's do this. Battleiness! This is a tricky one. We spoke about this um, before we did the episode, not to debate what score to give her, but the issue that we really are into the era of a constitutional monarchy now where a lot of what's going on isn't directly coming yeah. from Anne. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how we take that into account. It's probably more of an issue for the Rex factor than for these. I think so. I think yeah. for these we still give her the credit even though there's someone else yeah, at the head of the to. army. And then the Rex factor thing will sort itself out. And the man at the head of the army is an incredibly capable man, Duke of Marlborough. He was a handsome, handsome and dashing young officer and had an affair and indeed a child with uh, Barbara Villiers, who was sort of the most notable mistress of Charles II. Oh, yeah. So if we recall, John Churchill, Marlborough, was the man who was caught in flagrante by Charles one day with oh, his mistress. Oh, yeah, what did he say? So Charles said, you are a rascal, but you do it for your bread. <laughs> yeah, he did. He has a rapid rise up through the ranks. 1667, he was just a mere ensign. Came to prominence thanks to um, his patronage of James II. Something of a rogue, 
And he's not a very trustworthy man. Betrays James II, of course, he scarpers off to um, William III when mm. invasion comes. Conspires against William III, so remember he was writing to James II. Yeah. So, you know, he's a bit of a slippery character. But a successful general. But he is a military genius. Again, for the Dutch, as we said, 1702-203, he frees them from the sort of French stranglehold, so he pushes France out of the Netherlands, so he secures yeah. uh, the country. Blenheim is the big victory in 1704. Marched his allied army to the Danube, forced the French to battle. About 52,000 um, of these allies' troops overwhelmingly defeated about 60,000 French people. Marlborough was in the centre of the field the whole time, whereas the fighting was at its hardest. So had these tactics of a really hard march to get there quickly, and then infantry cavalry sort of alternating in their attacks which wins the day. And then presumably, the seat of Marlborough these days is Blenheim Palace. And that's what exactly, Blenheim that was his reward after. for that victory, was this huge palace at Blenheim, which is oh, right. later built. Um, he penciled a very famous note to his wife Sarah on horseback at Blenheim, um, on the back of a tavern bill, <laughs> apparently, which said, uh, I have not time to say more, but to beg you will give my duty to the Queen and let her know her army had a glorious victory. Once your Tallard and two other generals are in my coach, and I'm following the rest. Indeed, Tallard, who's the French commander, apparently was so convinced as to the strength of his defensive position um, that he went to bed quite early without bothering to sort anything out, was woken up at 6 o'clock a.m., um, to which he said, The whole area appeared to be covered by enemy squadrons. I rubbed my eyes in disbelief and then coolly remarked that the foe must at least give me time to take my morning cup of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. fair enough, though, you know. But this is a huge English uh, military victory, well, an allied military mm. victory. There was a danger that the, their allies, Austria, might be forced out of the war if Louis XIV was able to get a sort of quick victory to really nub them off. But instead, he loses his chance at early victory. It's the first time in 50 years that France has suffered a decisive defeat. Yeah. So this has been a previously undefeatable army. And it's the greatest English victory since Agincourt in 1415. Really? That's, that's I mean, it's the first victory in French soil, really, since the early years of Henry VI. Yeah. So Blenheim is one of those... It's not Again, it's not quite so famous not well known, now, but, but it's the biggest thing since Agincourt. It's overshadowed by events 100 years later, isn't it? Waterloo Very much in Napoleon, yeah. Waterloo, etc. But you think, for mm. the last few hundred years, England militarily really hasn't been very strong. They've just been threatened by invasion. Yeah, They're all the time. They're not able to do anything And even the themselves. Dutch having a go up the Yeah, exactly. Uh, naval. But up now... Which <laughs> 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 didn't go down very well at all. <laughs> Assessments um, of Marlborough and his campaigns. This is Adam de uh, Cardinal at uh, Blenheim. So this is a Frenchman. Said the Duke of Marlborough exposed himself in every place, from one attack to another, beyond what is thought advisable in a general, but he saw the good effect of his doing so, and no doubt knew the necessity of a battle better than any of us. In short, orders were never better given or better executed. Praise indeed from an enemy. From the enemy. And of course this is an allied command, so it's not just the English army, he's got to retain lot of English, Scottish, Irish, Dutch and German troops, and leaders and commanders, particularly as the Prince Eugene, who's very important. Mm commander under him as well and he manages it successfully yeah so this is you know sort of one of the first major sort of allied campaigns across huge numbers of territories and countries that we've really seen up to this yeah, point and marlborough is a man at the head of it yeah doing a very good job i mean william to an extent he was sort of that that yeah. um coalition against the other louis yeah but um never a defeat really no mm. Unprecedented run of military victories never surpassed before or since, really, for England. 
and many, including the eminent historian Richard Holmes and the Duke of Wellington, yeah. considered um, Marlborough to be the greatest general that England ever wow. produced, um, arguably on a level with Caesar and Napoleon. Right. So, so all the more shocking when he was then dismissed. Well, yes, exactly. Mm. And of course, he's the uh, ancestor of Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who him. Yeah. And Diana. Really? He seems to be descended from everyone in this period, but Churchill as well. I didn't yeah. know. And it's profitable peace, um, which does well for England territories. Um, at Utrecht, 1713, Britain retains Gibraltar, Cape Mahon in uh, the Mediterranean, Newfoundland in Canada, and uh, St. Kitts in the West Indies. So these are all important sort of naval... That was from the Treaty of Utrecht that we, it was gained? Uh, well, I think uh, some of them they were sort of reinforced, Fought. some of them were kind of right. gained. Uh, but as a result, England becomes the world's greatest naval power, mm. and it's now more militarily powerful than France at this stage. So England's gone from being this sort of little, almost backwater of Europe, suddenly being the dominant power. Yeah, and that is the foundation of empire, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because uh, you, um, all these ports then around the world, and mm. you've got this military strength to back it up. Yeah. It's only going to go one way. Exactly. And this of, is the defeat of Louis XIV. In 1702, when war was declared, he'd replied mockingly that he must be old indeed if a woman was waging war on him. Anne. Anne. Of course, Anne, the girl who, at four years old, he gave those uh, diamond-encrusted bracelets to. Exactly. <laughs> Came back to haunt him. Um, but he is defeated. He outlives Anne, however. He still manages that, but he dies a year later, 1715, just before turning 77, cool. and Lucky. after 72 years on the throne. Really? So his reign is that goes... That's a record, isn't it? His reign goes back to Charles I. So he's wow. seen out almost all of the Stuarts. Yeah, because there's been a lot of chopping and changing recently. It seems mm. like a long time, but... That, is that a record? Uh, it might be in France, I think, quite mm. possibly, yes. But so, that's a huge figure who's mm. been dominating foreign policy are. for a long time, defeated, mm. and now dead. So, that's all very good. Very good. But, of course, there's always a but. As you asserted, um, asserted as you alluded to, William III needs some credit here. Because yeah. he'd already done a lot of the work blooding the army mm. by fighting Louis XIV. He fought Louis to a standstill previously. He's the one that really leaves the legacy of the army that Marlborough is able to defeat Louis with. So as Anne herself has said, she, you know, she basically inherits a war. Yeah, from and him. he's the tactician. She found a war waiting. Mm. William's the one that made it. This was what he... The final chapter in William's um, mm. reign that he yeah. never saw through. Yes. He'd love to have, have seen this. But, I mean, we are going to face this more and more, aren't we? Yeah. And these victories happened under Anne. There are some more limitations. They don't quite manage the knockout blow against Louis XIV. As you said, it does get stuck. Mm. From 1708, 1709. So we don't have a Waterloo, in effect. We don't Mm. have that absolute... And now he's in prison. He's just still King of France. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, And I suppose if we look for anything from Anne, we look for some kind of leadership. Because, you know, this is a war against Louis XIV, who is also not at the head of the army, but nevertheless. Yeah. Um, But she's not this sort of inspiring military figure. If you think of something like Elizabeth at Tilbury in armour giving that great speech... Yeah. She's this sort of unfortunate... She is literally um, sort of has the body of a weak and feeble woman. <laughs> so it's a Scottish Union commissioner, when he saw her, said that yeah. nature seems to be inverted when a poor, infirm woman becomes one of the rulers of the world. And many argue that the peace is too lenient. Firstly, of course, it was unilateral, so England negotiated without the Austrians, the Dutch, or the Germans, in secret, until yeah. it got leaked. Marlborough's furious, because he promised there'd be no separate peace and no peace without Spain, etc. It goes back on all of that. Um, but France would have ceded much more 
if they've been pushed. Really? Yeah. But why, why would they be lenient then? In order to not burn bridges spe- with them? Well, I suppose they just wanted, maybe they just wanted the peace. Of course, they do quite well out of it. Apparently, Louis XIV said to his um, commissioners when they came back, in many points, you have surpassed my wildest hopes. So, you know, so we have a few limitations. She's not an inspiring war leader. Never mind the fact she's not at the front of the army. She's not an inspiring yeah. figure. Um, peace, maybe, was it a little bit too lenient? It's William's legacy as well as... Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so there are some limitations. But, uh, but it is good, the good stuff. But it's by far militarily the best thing we've had since Henry V. That is tricky, isn't it? I knew this was going to be tough. I don't think she can be in that league of the, the tens of the people oh, no, that conquer no. a country and... And not because she wasn't there, just because she was really trying to balance this political intrigue and not really fuss mm. one way or the other. If mm. she was committed to... Uh, either ideology yes and succeeded in helping that one come about mm. she'd score more points yeah but you have to give her credit for it happening under her watch and so- it's incredible what Marlborough achieves is yeah. some of the best English victories that there are taking that into account then mm-hmm. five or six I'm going six though because of the big score mm. but it just feels I can I, I can kind of see why it's why it's overshadowed the, the stuff that does come a hundred years later is done with this whole spirit of empire and um, and there's just more sort of vim and vigour about it. I don't think Anne really contributes much, mm. although it does happen. So, then six. Six. I'm going to give her an eight. Okay. Even though, as I said, I'm not giving her too much credit, but that is going to be a running theme. It's going and to I be... think that the victories have to be accredited. That You know, if you were to take the armies from history and you were to Picture put an army it. against Anne's army... Anne's army's got a good chance of winning. That's very true. So I'm going to give her an eight. But that's a 14 for battliness, which is not a bad start. Scandal. Not got an awful lot to go on here, mm. to be honest. Um, early in her life, uh, there's a man called Lord Mulgrave, who is uh, a bachelor favourite of Charles II. Yeah. And thus you can imagine what sort of a character. <laughs> um, showed a very strong interest in Anne when she was about 18 and he was 35. He claimed he was guilty of only ogling Anne. Mm. How but, does he define ogling? Well, others said that he wrote letters intimating too near an address to her. Right. Um, apparently he was uh, banned from court and temporarily exiled to Tangiers. Oh. Uh, but very doubtful that anything actually happened. And he does come back later under James II and doesn't seem to suffer too much. So probably nothing happened. But it does speed up negotiations for Anne's marriage, so she is married later that year. Right. But it's doubtful that it's really. doubtful, yeah. Also, of course, we have the accusations of her being a lesbian. Which are nonsense. James II apparently criticised her boundless passion for Sarah Churchill. But... That's probably the language of the time. Language of the time. Um, But yes, of course, as we said, it was Sarah accused her of um, a lesbian relationship with Abigail Masham. And she said, having discovered so great a passion for such a woman, for sure there can be no great reputation in a thing so strange and unaccountable, to say no more of it. Nor can I think that having no inclination for any but of one's own sex is enough to maintain such a character as I wish may still be yours. So it's doubtful that she was ever a lesbian with Sarah, then? Yes. Um, I just don't think there's anything in that at all. No, I I don't know. I think it's just a really nasty bit of vitriol from Sarah Churchill. Zero. I think it has to be zero. There really isn't anything scandalous. There's some unpleasantness mm. we'll come to under subjectivity, but I think it is more how she conducts herself rather than juicy scandal. So that is zero. 
Subjectivity. Well, there's some good stuff here. Yeah. Firstly, Great Britain, which we can now speak of because there is now Britain. And we only visited Scotland once, apparently, which was when James II had been briefly exiled under uh, the rule of Charles II yeah. towards the end of the reign. So she was, uh, she was the last monarch to visit Scotland until George IV. So we get, they get them in the Union and then ignore them. <laughs> Just ignore them, yes. But, importantly, we have the Act of Union in 1707. Ensures the Hanoverian succession in both countries, which, as I said, was yeah. under threat. Helps acts against a Jacobite threat. Uh, combined institutions, but Scotland keeps its law, its law courts and its system of education. Uh, but it's a big achievement. It's 104 years since James I stroke the sixth became king of both. Yeah. And yet none of the other Stuarts have managed to get a political as well as a personal union. Anne did personally encourage it herself. She wore combined orders of the Garter and the Thistle at a public ceremony afterwards. Uh, so, you know, it's a big deal. Yeah, big deal, big deal. Ireland doesn't have such a prominent role in this period. Um, all we've got is a comment from Anne saying, uh, she understood they had a mind to be independent if they could, but they should not. <laughs> that pretty much sums up most monarchs' uh, yes. point of view, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Politics is one where, as you see, there are pros and cons, but we look at the pros, first of all, in Anne's role. She despises the divisiveness of parties. She says, I pray God keep me out of the hands of both of them. So she tries to hark back to the, a sort of Elizabethan national unity where she is above the political fray. But she is able to appeal to both of them. So for the Tories, she's very, very strongly, resolutely Anglican. Church of England, which big deal for them. But for the Whigs, she is essentially constitutional in her approach. She doesn't hark to the divine right of kings or anything like that. Yeah. So she is able to appeal to both yeah. sides, which is important. So she accepts the limitations of the monarchy, accepts the powers of Parliament, careful not to exceed her prerogative. Yeah. So you know, that's all positive governance. But she does have strong leadership at the same time. She does still influence uh, events. So ministers had to get things through Anne, so she didn't like it. Apparently Bolingbroke noted that there was a, a thing that she'd do with her fan over her mouth to indicate that something was just non-negotiable. Really? Like a little sign that she'd sort of wave it in a certain way and then they all knew, yep, better drop this one. And in 1708, uh, we have the last monarch vetoing parliamentary act using the royal veto. On... Um, it was Scottish militia bill, so there was an attempted invasion by um, the old pretender, um, which doesn't come to anything, and he's forced off. But they want to have a militia put up in Scotland. But she's concerned that, you know, they're not sure what the loyalties of the militia will be, and if they have this armed force in Scotland, it might turn on them. So she vetoed it, and that's the last time a monarch ever vetoes an act of parliament. But it does indicate she is the last monarch that, in effect, had politically power, yeah. has the power to put it into practice. So she did have the power to be a bit more, you know, zippy, a bit more... But, you know, would that have caused more problems for yeah. her if she hadn't been trying to balance? She also works very, very hard, attends more cabinet meetings than any monarch before or since, had a very good memory, able to judge issues for herself, holds daily meetings with her ministers, weekly cabinet meetings daily petitions, formal audiences, audiences, attends House of Lords debates. So, you know, she's she's working hard. Mm. And we've got to remember that she's unhealthy, she's struggling to move about and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's difficult enough for her as it is. And as you said earlier, you know, when Harley gets dismissed, he just gets dismissed, he doesn't get his head locked off. Mm. Period of minimal violence, no political executions. Um, only one very mild impeachment, the Tory preacher, um, yeah. Sasha Verrell. No strong religious persecution particularly, and it's a charitable giving. So, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a pretty good period, really. You think we're really moving away from the violence of the yeah. Tudors and the Civil War 
and we're moving towards this much more stable political era. Yeah. She's really stepping from one to the other. She's helping the she's helping transition. the transformation mm. to democracy. Mm. Yeah, so, you know that's all. So she's the right person to have in at the time. Exactly, and she's very popular. She's British, which seems obvious, but she's the last monarch until the current Queen Elizabeth II to have one non-foreign-born parent. Because we've got the Georgians, who of course are all German, yeah, and then all their marriages are to foreign princesses. Oh yeah. Uh, first, also since Elizabeth I, who has spent her whole life in England, barring that one visit to the strange people in Scotland. Mm. Her accession speech, she really plays up on this. Um, so she says, As I know my heart to be entirely English, I can very sincerely assure you that there is not one thing you can expect or desire of me which I shall not be ready to do for the happiness or prosperity of England. And, that, she, and she's playing up, of course, the fact William III, her predecessor, of course, was Dutch and not very popular yeah. for this. And she, there's more Elizabethan parallels there. A big and she deliberately cultivates um, parallels as well. Uh, she dresses in imitation of some of Elizabeth's famous portraits. Oh, right. Um, adopted um, Semper Iadem as her motto, always the same. So that was the same as the motto that Elizabeth had. And again, very much like a golden speech, as it's called, that uh, Elizabeth made towards the end of her reign, Anne said, though those that come after me may be more capable of so great a trust as it has pleased God to put into my hands, I am sure they can never discharge it more faithfully. Mm. I, you might have more, you might have better kings and queens that come afterwards, but none will love you more than I. Except Didn't Elizabeth, who said the same Elizabeth thing. Elizabeth said exactly the same thing, yeah. 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 And, you know, she revives the practice of touching for scrofula, which had been very popular oh, yeah. previously. Uh, the infant Samuel Johnson was one of the last to be uh, touched. Really? By her in this way. And of course the war successes in the war hugely boost her popularity and national pride. So it's in 1712 that we have the invention of the character John Bull, who's this sort of archetypal embodiment of the English spirit. And lots of good stuff in culture, of course. Um, in terms of architecture, we have the construction of Blenheim Palace and Castle Howard. In literature, it's a period of Daniel Defoe, Alexander Poe, and uh, Alexander Pope, and Jonathan Swift. Right. And uh, gardens are... Knife Pierce as well. Henry Wise's Gardens at Blenheim, Kensington, Windsor and St James's. Who's that other famous gardener? What's his name? Capability Brown. Yeah, when was he? Uh, I think he's a bit later, right. one of the Georges. Um, also, of course, furniture, famously, named after Anne. Well, Queen Anne. Uh, Queen Anne tables or chairs, or both? Well, let That's us know. Type you know. of design. And Ascot. Uh, Royal well, Ascot. She's 17, responsible, she? 1711, she was out for a summer drive. Um, so this would be better on a horse, but <laughs> lots of them. <laughs> well, it was. She noted she halted on the common Ascot and noticed that it appeared perfectly suited for horses oh, racing yeah. around. So she said, orders that they laid out a track, and promised that she'd provide a challenge plate for the inaugural meeting. And thus we have Royal Ascot, which is a So lots of positive things going yeah. on under Anne, yeah. but we also have some rather negative aspects to her character and her okay. role. She's somewhat duplicitous. First of all, Mayor of Medina and the birth of the false son, yeah, as yeah. it was. Anne is the one that lends credence to the rumours about the false pregnancy. She wrote to her sister Mary saying there was much reason to believe it a false belly, claimed that Mary um, of Medina refused to let her touch the belly or see her undressed, which she wrote saying, like, well, given all the rumours, you would have thought she would have been desperate to let me 
prove yeah. that she's not faking it. Worked out rather well for her, though, didn't it? Well, indeed. She also wrote to Anne saying, um, her being, uh, to William, saying, her being so positive it will be a son, and the principles of that religion, i.e. Catholicism, being such that they will stick at nothing, be it never so wicked, if it will promote their interest, give some cause to fear there may be foul play intended. So, you know, she's really picking up the mm. sense that there's a conspiracy afoot. Is this because she knows she'd then be in line for the throne, or, or is she just... I think maybe she's just a bit of a stirrer. Yeah. Because um, she then has to admit she'd never actually been permitted to touch Mary's belly for previous pregnancies. So there's nothing unusual. Mm. And James II's memoirs claim that she had felt the baby stir. And uh, there was one time when he got lots of people together to swear a public deposition that it was a genuine pregnancy... Anne pretended to be pregnant as an excuse to avoid uh, swearing this and went off to Bath. That is quite stupid. And so she was in Bath when the baby was born. So a lot of her reports are basically just gossip and hearsay. Yeah. But because it's her, it lends a certain credence to yeah, it. Yeah, just a little bit of smoke is enough to assume it's Exactly. Well. She abandons James in 1688 on the invasion of William III. And because he thought that she was pregnant, um, he ex- still expressed concern for her well-being when this she said that she was father. on the run. This is her father. And of course, he said, the time God helped me, even my children have forsaken me. Whom then could I trust if my own daughters had deserted me? If only my enemies had cursed me, I could have borne it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is something that you, it's quite hard to bear. Though, doesn't reflect it? very well. Yeah. And it's endemic in the way that she sort of governs her affairs. So, mm. you know, her ministers, after years of law service, um, declined to give Godolphin an audience or send any message to him when she dismissed him. Mm. And uh, Marlborough apparently found his dismissal letter so offensive that he threw it on the fire and never mentioned it again. Mm. So she's got that sort of Stuart trait of, um, you know, sort of really dropping people. people up. Yeah, dropping yeah. people and she doesn't need them anymore. Although we praised her in some ways for the way that she manages politics, at the same time, there are limitations to how good she is. She never really learned how to manipulate the party system or how to adapt to different electoral results. So she said, I have changed my ministers, but I have not changed my measures. I am still for moderation and will govern by it. Mm. So she thinks that, you know, basically she picks her ministers and they are her ministers. So she doesn't really understand what elections actually mean or how she can work with them. Right. So she could maybe have been a bit more canny and a bit more successful with it. But she did. She was, as we were saying earlier, she was the, that middle ground in the transition yeah. from... Absolute power to democracy. Yep. So it kind of works. It's true. Um, as we alluded to into battliness, you know, it's really other people that are now dominating and mm. ruling. It's Godolphin, it's Marlborough, it's Harley. These are the people that are actually, you know, yeah. doing the governing. We're on the verge of having prime ministers who are de facto. Yeah, rulers. so it was the Pitt. When was Pitt? Uh, well, Walpole is the first oh, Walpole, sorry, prime yeah, minister. He is actually a minister in this period. He's not the primary minister. Yeah. yeah. But it's in the next round of George I that yeah. he does, in effect, become that. So we're very close to that. Although there isn't strong religious persecution in this period, that's not for want of trying. Really? At the start of the period, remember, the Tories had that bill opposing occasional conformity, where they wanted heavy fines for those who attend the Anglican services but are also dissenters. Yeah. Anne had supported it. It was only when it got opposed by the Whigs and the Lords and she saw that it might cause problems that she opposed it. So it wasn't out of principle that she opposed it, more because she realised it might be too tricky to pass. In her final years, she was uh, supporting further legislation um, that was sort of going against dissenters, and there were fears that she would repeal the Toleration Act. It was under William and Mary, which sort of protected dissenters. So dissenters saw her death as divine intervention. Even sort of 50 years later, they were almost celebrating that 
she died just before she was going to really... So she was in about to... Yeah, she'd lived for a few more years, then it would have seen much more repressive measures, potentially, against dissenters. So... Yeah, I mean... You we t- can't credit her for the lack of persecution, because it wasn't for... Yeah, it wasn't for trying. But, uh, but it didn't happen. So, yeah. but, mm, yeah, mm. it is tricky. But then, is would you want to be a subject? Mm. Possibly not, mm. if you were a dissenter. And personality and personalities do have a strong role in the way that affairs are managed, and many have seen that as the biggest weakness of her rule. Yeah. Um, so we see petty personality squabbles and favourites dominating what's going on. So Marlborough's rise and fall is almost sort of based around the role of his wife, Sarah Churchill, more than his governance or his military rule. Yeah. So the fact that this great general is dismissed because of the politics and the personalities rather than because of his com- military Yeah, that, role. Is a, that is... So David Hamilton, a doctor, said false insinuations and misrepresentations misled the Queen's judgment and made her yield to the direction of others. So she was not kept, she kept not only from persons of contrary opinion, but from the knowledge of things. So I, you know, she's just sort of got yes people with her, and it's whoever are her favourites are the people that are dominating. We've seen this time and time again, though, haven't we? Mm. It never works. And people don't speak very highly of her character. Sarah Churchill wrote, She certainly meant well and was not a fool, but nobody can maintain that she was wise nor entertaining in conversation. She was ignorant in everything but what the Parsons had taught her when a child. An historian, uh, Kishlansky, said that Anne was dull, taciturn, stubborn and unattractive. Her conversation was mind-numbing, her taste insipid, her pleasures, is, her pleasures limited to gambling and dining, losing pounds at one set of tables and gaining at <laughs> another. Yeah. However, it's important to note, Sarah Churchill is very much biased against her because she's dismissed in 1711. As we've seen, Sarah Churchill's view on things is rather haughty, yeah, rather arrogant and unsympathetic. So 1742, her memoirs have largely defined the negative portrayal of Anne's character for a long time afterwards. So although there are unpleasant elements to it, you do have to take it with a pinch of salt because the biggest source holds a massive spiteful grudge. Yeah. But the biggest source is uh, is this Lady Sarah. Yeah. And it's Anne's fault that she's sort of ruling by personality with all these people. It's indicative, you could say, of the fact that personalities are ha- and favourites are having a big yeah, role. Yeah, I think that's really Mary- um, Anne's fault. Yeah. Oh, dear. So we've got some good stuff. Some not so good stuff. I think the, I think the good stuff, on reflection, yeah. far outweighs the bad. Yeah. We look at, because I mean, the bad stuff is so petty, you almost yeah, think, well, you it think, doesn't matter that much. Yeah, and it's just niggling. Duplicitous... There's the party politics, which is going to carry on. Yeah. Um, stuff around the dissenters, which isn't really stuff around the dissenters. It, 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 want, it she perhaps wanted it to be, but it wasn't. And a uh, questionable personality. Yeah. But active union, constitutional monarchy, popular at the time. Yeah. All this culture. It's a big score. I think mm. it's got to be good. It's good stuff. Seven. Oh, no, hang on. Hang on. What am I talking about? <laughs> Great active union. Yeah. Eight. <laughs> Definitely eight. Um, I'm ten. Why you go nine? Because you've got the war, the um, the wars at the time to back it up that people would have been pleased that there was a. Although it was. Although they then do yeah, suffer yeah. when it becomes a bit harder. But then you've got the start of empire. Actually, well, we haven't discussed how we're going to. We haven't quite empire. got there yet. Yeah. It's sort of a foundation, but again, it's not quite happened. Of course, I mean, one of the big things actually I should have mentioned with empire is that. The biggest economic boom for England is that they get a 30-year monopoly on the slave trade. 
Right. I'm back to eight. Which is a huge <laughs> thing in terms of money, yeah. because it's a very lucrative trade, but we might not look at upon it quite so favourably. No, no. No. <laughs> Look, I'll give one more. No. Um, uh, yeah, eight. Eight. I'm going to give her a seven. Mm. It is very big stuff and it is very good, but I'm just, I'm just torn. I'm, I think part know. of the trouble is that it's not necessarily that, that... And this is a, now a problem, that it's not necessarily her doing the work mm. when good stuff happens. Um, it's also that she's just... It's her character. Mm. It's just mm. that she goes about it, so... But then it's which aspect of her character that we look to. Do we look to the um, the petty squabbles, the personalities and the favourites, the duplicity? Or do we look to the hard-working, the woman that's come over the 17 failed pregnancies yeah, and all these sorts really of things, you know? It's, oh, yeah. Very interesting character. But I'm going to give her a seven. So that's 15 for subjectivity, which is nevertheless... A big score. Good score. Longevity. So we finally come to how long she ruled for. <laughs> the clues were in the date given, of course. 1702 to 1714. Oh, that's not long. Uh, 12.42 years. So if we type that into our patty calculator, that's 3.91. Not a big score. No, it's pretty bad. Dynasty, not the programme. Of course, tragically, no surviving children. No. So that's a zero there, which gives her a total score... Right, 32.91. Yeah. That's very low. So, 32.91 for Anne, but the crucial question is, does she have that certain something, that mark of greatness, that lasting legacy and achievement, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! This is where the difficulties of the Constitution Monarch really kick in. Yeah, because we have to change the definition of Rex Factor Mm. subtly with each passing year it changes ever so slightly so we're not looking for that sword held in the air it's something different does she have it and big things happen huge in Anne's reign defeat of Louis XIV battle of Blenheim etc the act of union with Scotland creation of Great Britain and the formation of countries you know it's worldwide power it's a very stable successful reign but but for X Factor yeah you need that that Invisible something, that mm. star quality. And I'm not sure that she has it, mm. but this good stuff does happen. It's really conflicting. It's really. Oh. You could argue, which is going to be a constant argument, that it's, you know, the legacy of William III, the achievement of Marlborough yeah. are the ones that bring the glory. What does Anne do, really, to push it? The, sort of the paradoxical nature yeah. of her reign. Uh, this is Voltaire. Both her adherents and her enemies agreed that she was a woman of very ordinary character. Nevertheless, her reign was the most glorious since those of Edward III and Henry V. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. Is, yes, I mean, typical Voltaire, putting it slightly <laughs> more succinctly than me. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. She was an ordinary person ruling over extraordinary events. Mm. And to what extent is that her credit... Now she's a constitutional monarch, maybe we can't we have to judge the yeah. events, but I think if she wanted to, mm. there could have been more effort. But maybe more effort would have caused more political conflict and that would have mm. undermined it all. I just don't think she has that star quality. I agree. I it it's troubled me. When I was doing when I when we were coming to this one I think, well Anne Anne's not gonna get it, obviously. Yeah. And then I was doing the reading and I started to think, there's all this really great stuff. How how does she not get it? Mm. 
but it is that that personal quality in something which is more important now yeah. when they're not directly responsible for the achievements so they have to have really have to have that something yeah. even though people are looking back on these on these victories these uh, act of union the um uh military glory mm. the name Anne never comes up doesn't but then again or maybe for furniture people it's the different <laughs> story but then again you know is Anne just unlucky that she's only there for 10 years and Victoria's there for 60 years yeah you know does, does Anne does Victoria do anything more Rex Factory no I think she's than really Anne except that. rule for, six, for a long time and yeah. have more great stuff happen because she's there for longer mm. but we're not doing Victoria no, this week not. we are doing Anne and the question is does she have what it takes to be a Rex Factor winner I'd like for her to be one of these ones where I go, actually, yeah, that's really good, and there's mm. a new Rex Factor winner, but I can't. I just can't. That's a no from no. you. And it's a no from me as well. She does not have the Rex Factor, but probably for the first time, her reign does. Yeah, definitely. It's an incredible reign, but she hasn't got that certain sound that no. we're looking for. But that is it for Anne, and that is it for the Stuarts. Been a lot going on, but we are moving to a different era. We are moving to the Hanoverians the Georgians see you next time see you next time goodbye